Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, we're here today for a program titled Step by Step, The Path to Ending Child Mortality. My name is Charles Sennett. I'm the co-founder of Global Post and I'm the moderator today. I want to introduce our panelists. We have a great panel who can help us go into this issue and I'll frame some of the discussion uh, a bit later. But I just wanted to start off by introducing everyone. Um, to my left is Elizabeth Gibbons who is Senior Fellow at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. Um, Elizabeth was formerly the former Deputy Director for Policy and Practice and Associate Director of Gender Rights and Civic Engagement at UNICEF. Thanks for being with us. Um, and then further down is Regina Rabinovich. Um, Regina is the Exxon Mobile Malaria Scholar in Residence here at Harvard University. Thanks for being with us. And we have Jackie Baba, Jacqueline Baba, who is Director of Research at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. And we have uh, Richard Cash, who is Senior Lecturer on Global Health and Pioneer in Oral Rehydration Therapy, also Harvard School of Public Health. Thanks for being with us. So I wanted to start today just by sharing the framework here for a one-hour discussion where we'll have two question and answer periods and we're going to show you two short videos. We hope that we can get into a discussion of what works and what doesn't work in terms of uh, a really dramatic um, period in which we've seen child mortality decreased. There's been pretty stunning developments that, that we've explored through our reporting around the world and how people are working hard to really bring down this rate of child mortality. And we, we want to get into the specifics on what is working and what is not and hear from our panelists on that subject. Um, this is an extraordinary collaboration for us at Global Post to be part of the Harvard School of Public Health on its 100th anniversary. It's a real pleasure to be here. We think that um, there are so many experts we draw on here for so much of the reporting we do on global health. Um, and we want to um, describe the project we did, which was funded by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is called Step by Step. We did this in partnership with Kaiser uh, and brought in a lot of reporting fellows and research fellows from Columbia University. And some of them are here in the audience. I'll try to introduce them later as we go along, and I hope they'll be among those who will ask questions. Um, we felt like this topic of child mortality was one where we could really come together and try to look at that issue, which is really the most profound way in which we should judge societies, our success and our failure. Uh, should be judged in the end of the day on how we take care of children or how we fail to take care of children. Uh, no more vulnerable population in our world than children and to, to know that there are six plus billion children who are dying every year before the age of five uh, largely due to preventable diseases is really a crisis. Even though there has been, as we've said, dramatic success in lowering that number, to think there are still six billion and more who are dying every year is extraordinary and something really to think about. So what we want to do is, is show you a video tape um, which was produced by uh, Global Post's Emily Judum and which incorporates a lot of the reporting fellows here and tries to frame the issue.
1990, more than 12 million children died under the age of five. What we've seen since then is a huge amount of progress. Out of the 1.7 million under five-year deaths in India, nearly 900,000 are in the first month of, of the child's life. I decided to look at pneumonia because it is actually the leading cause of death for children under five years old. There are an estimated 120 million children who were, had suspected pneumonia in 2011 alone, and it has a really high fatality rate. There's still around 700 million people a year that are affected by the unclean water issues. And to me, it, it feels like a battle zone. It feels like an undeclared war. Malaria is truly the perfectly honed killer. And in this part of Zambia, it's not uncommon for children, men and women, to have malaria eight, nine, ten times in their lives. And yet it's preventable. Today, uh, about seven million kids die under the age of five. And that's extraordinary progress. Solving that problem, ending preventable child death, helps make our world more stable and more prosperous. That video, um, I, I hope, helps us frame some of the issues. We, we heard Rajiv Shah from USAID there at the end talking about how ending this problem really is important for all of us. It's a way that we are going to have to see the success of our society will be in continuing to work to lower this number. But um, Liz, I hope you could start us off uh, just by talking about your work at UNICEF and think broadly for us for a minute. Help us define um, some of the key issues we need to focus on and maybe highlight uh, the most recent UNICEF report and what key problems were highlighted there. Well, thanks, first of all, for organizing this panel. I mean, it's, it's the big issue, really. I mean, the, the right to survival for millions of children. It's a silent emergency, so thank you for bringing attention to it. Yeah, the latest report actually shows continuing good progress. I mean, from 12.6 million children per year dying of preventable causes in 1990, it's now 6.6 .6 million. So that's 47% decrease. It's a huge decrease. And the, the speed of, uh, uh, of decline is also increasing from around 1% uh, per annum in the 1990s to close to 4% um, since 2005. So that's really, really good news. But the progress is very uneven. Um, they're uneven between regions and uneven within countries. So um, uh -huh. where the Millennium Development Goal for 2015 was two-thirds reduction in preventable child mortality um, globally. It's nowhere near going to be read. You're going to be hit with only two regions that are close to that, which is, in fact, Latin America and East Asia. The big pool of child mortalities remains in, in Africa and in South Asia, which is 80% together. And the causes, as I know we have some esteemed people who will discuss more in detail, the causes are mo largely preventable, but neonatal deaths, uh, neonatal is the cause of 44% of deaths, and that's one of the most difficult um, periods to deal with. Um, pneumonia, 17%, 
Ma uh, malaria, I think, around 7%, if I'm not mistaken, and diarrhea around 10% as a cause, uh, immediate cause of death. Obviously, these are completely uh, preventable with the right kind of services and with the right kind of, uh, of support. But beyond that, within countries, there's a huge issue of who, who's being left behind by the progress. And it's the poor children who are being left behind. Um, poor children are two times as likely to die as the richest children. If you're in a rural uh, family, you're also twice as likely to die before your fifth birthday. And if your mother has no education, three times more likely to die. So there's enormous inequalities within countries. And even the stars of MDG progress are not addressing it. Uh, Bangladesh, which has had an incredible progress reducing child mortality 67%, still the poorest Bangladeshi children are twice as likely to die as the richest. So they're not benefiting from the progress. And a country like Ghana, uh, where actually the reduction in mortality of the poorest is 34% compared to only 19% in the richest, they should be getting enormous international recognition. But they are deemed off track for the international MDG because they haven't succeeded in reaching two-thirds. So I would leave you with the, the issue of who's benefiting from the progress and, and what needs to be done to be sure there's more equitable uh, progress. Okay, thank you. That's, that is a great overview. I want to try to go into some, some of the areas of expertise here as well uh, on the panel. And I would ask to, the panelists to please try to keep it to about two minutes so we can stay on track, which we are on track, thanks to Liz. Um, so, um, Regina, if you could, if you could um, maybe spell out for us sort of the toll of malaria, of pneumonia, uh, rotavirus, and and what part of this uh, do we need to be concerned about? How do we look at HIV and AIDS in this broader context? I think it can get a little bit overwhelming when you look at all the numbers because child mortality is the net result of failure in to deliver some technologies, of the required health systems that are required to be able to reach the hardest and most at risk population and complexity of different diseases. So let me just simplify it to one, two, three. People usually think when I'm, you know, malaria scholar in residence that I, number one would be malaria, and it's not, it's pneumonia. Mm. And we've been pretty persistent in that. A child that gets a respiratory infection in an endemic area uh, was 10 more likely, 10 times more likely to develop pneumonia than a child in the United States. So the risk factors because of a variety of conditions including malnutrition is much higher. And once they have pneumonia, they're much less likely to get treated because of lack of access to a simple antibiotic. So what works? Prevention works. And I think that's gonna be my theme. Whether you're talking about pneumonia, diarrhea, or malaria, prevention works. And for, for pneumonia, it's two vaccines, Hib and pneumococcal vaccine. Also, some aspects of measles that are really having an impact in helping drive those numbers down. What works in diarrhea? Well, we're still in the process of scaling up the rotavirus vaccine. Oral hydration for treatment uh, works, prevention works. And what works in malaria? We've done lots of advances in, in uh, access to good drugs, but what works? Bad nets work, prevention works. And so it's the promise of adding new tools, but the commitment of country leaders under the MDGs, which you brought up, but I want to emphasize it's not just a paper exercise. 
It is about countries holding themselves accountable to the health of their children. That works. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and Jackie, Baba, well, I wanted to ask you to, to really bring us into some of the issues of equity and gender as they play out in this, this drama or, uh, as Liz called it, this silent emergency. How do we look at um, the young, um, particularly poorly educated girls who are married off too early, um, and, and to what extent is that, that, that huge swath of population that's just marrying too young, um, how does that make the women and then therefore the children they produce uh, particularly vulnerable? Um, and help us focus on specifically on infant mortality um, and to look at, at this toll, dramatic toll on children one month or younger. Um, sure. Well, I think that some of the main themes have already been brought out, and I'd just like to emphasize them uh, within maybe a more human rights context. So I think the two big problems we're dealing with here are the failure to respect two cardinal human rights principles. One is the principle of equality, and the second is the principle of non-discrimination. And in a way, both of these work together to create the silent emergency. So what do I mean? Firstly, um, the question of equality. So we've heard that for rural populations, for populations who are poor, for populations where education is lacking, particularly for the mother, they're much higher risk. So why does this continue? Why is there this inequality? And I think here is where we have to start really paying attention. So these are clearly political decisions, a question of political will. So of course we do need new technologies and we do need the diffusion of new technologies. But we also need a more basic social and political commitment to equality, to distributing goods more, more, um, more widely and in a less um, partial way. Um, secondly, the question of discrimination. There are many levels at which, at which discrimination affects the problem that we're talking about of child mortality. But I would just mention two. Firstly, gender. Gender discrimination is a huge factor. The fact that the girl child, first of all, is less likely to survive. And secondly, if she does survive, is less likely to be adequately nourished adequately educated, adequately protected from violence, or adequately able to get a job and to earn. That has an enormous impact on our problem because uh, these young women are the mothers whose children are most likely to die. So there's a close connection between the gender discrimination and child mortality. So in terms of prevention, which is I think what Gina was referring to a minute ago, uh, we need to prevent the diseases from taking hold. But even before that, we need to prevent women who are mothers from being handicapped or disadvantaged in the way they are. So I think that's one of the most uh, sort of critical issues that we confront. So child mortality would be far, far less if mothers were educated, if mothers were empowered, and if mothers were older. Okay, thank you. Richard, your, your expertise on, on water and waterborne diseases and specifically looking at dirty water, um, I wanted to, to ask you about remarkable improvements that have been made in that area, but the idea that there still remains a human toll that is devastating that's linked to these uh, waterborne diseases, di diarrheal diseases, and also nutritional deficiencies. 
and maybe try to explore the line between mortality and morbidity. Thank you. Uh, and again, thanks to the uh, organizers for putting this panel together. First of all, I'm, I'm a very much a glass half full type person. Actually, the, the reduction has been uh, almost uh, two thirds because the population of the world has increased 30% since the original uh, predictions were out. It's around 39%, uh, uh, it's around 60, 61% reduction. So we're doing better than we even give ourselves credit for. Um, my concern is that uh, we have focused very heavily on mortality when in fact morbidity is an equally important issue. If children are sick a lot, if they are um, uh, not able to fulfill their capacity, uh, we've got a problem. And by simply focusing on mortality, which so much of the focus has been on, we ignore issues such as uh, contaminated water, such as poor educational systems that Jackie was referring to. Um, and so it's all of those, that other package of development issues which are critical. What we don't want is uh, successes in mortality and people still living in abject poverty. And in fact, that is what has happened. Our, our, our tools are very powerful. Our vaccines are really good. Our interventions are very good. Uh, uh, but we haven't adequately addressed the underlying risks and causes of, uh, of both the mortality and the morbidity. Okay, thank you. And so, so that, I hope, frames the discussion from the different points of view of our experts on the panel. But now we want to go to you. We want to hear um, some of your questions in the audience. And we also have an audience online that will be asking questions. And our first question uh, will go to Penny Duckham, who is with us here from the Kaiser Family Foundation. As I've mentioned, um, Kaiser is our partner in, in this project and has been for several years in, in supporting uh, global health reporting at Global Post. It's work we care about, and we couldn't do it without Kaiser. And uh, thanks for that, Penny. And um, Penny, I wanted to just throw the first question to you. Thanks, Charlie. As reporters coming to this field, I think one of the most striking things is the number of goals in global health, and child mortality issues are no exception. This morning, you've only mentioned the millennial development goals, but the, how useful are these, and do they um, overlap? Are there too many of them? Do they really lead to accomplishments or perhaps to disappointment, because they're ne almost never met? Who'd like to take that up first? It's a, it's a hard one, but it's one that we saw our reporters really struggle with. How do we gauge the metrics? I think the, the 2015 goals, which have been already pushed back once, have been an enormous driver for action. And right now, as we're closing in on 2015, countries are realizing that some of them will make it, <coughs> others will not. The, it, it is surprising to me how much it is creating a focus for what is important to do right now. What can be achieved by 2015? How to advance that agenda even more quickly? And it's happening at a financing level, the refinancing of the Global Fund, uh, which is all about making the resources <coughs> available right now. So I think that in that way, it can be very helpful in terms of creating that focus um, and some accountability around it. 
I also know there's lots of brochures and plans and reports that are sitting on bookshelves which embody others. So I think it's not the goal per se, but the process of generating them and country ownership. And if the country doesn't own that goal as something that they aspire to, you know, you could save the paper. Yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, why don't, why don't we, um, uh, Jackie, want, do you want to uh, sort of respond quickly and then we'll have Liz as well? Um, yeah, so I think it's a very good question and it's a fair question because um, inevitably uh, the MDGs have attracted both uh, supporters and critics, supporters for the reasons that Gina just outlined, that there really has been a focus of attention and a sort of tangible set of benchmarks which can guide policy making and that's always useful in a complicated arena and a contested arena. Criticism because um, of course inevitably stuff is left out so people who work on gender-based violence have been critical of the MDGs. I think there are the, the focus for example in education on primary education has left out other aspects of education which as we I hope we'll discuss later are critical uh, to empowering uh, girls and young women. And also the interconnections between the rights or the, the goals are in a way obscured by having these discrete eight bullets. So I think there are eight. So um, I think there is there's something there which is um, which which you know hopefully can be improved upon as we move beyond 2015. And I would just say that um, from the human rights perspective, there are other goals embedded in our international human rights conventions which many countries have signed on to. And the fact that MDGs are now the primary focus for many shouldn't obscure the fact that these other fundamental human rights goals are also binding on states, and I hope that they can come back into the forefront of attention. Okay. Liz? Well, I actually, most of what I would like to say has been okay. eloquently stated by Anything the other panelists. Well, I, I really want to emphasize the, the human rights aspect and the mm -hmm. issue of e equality, which was very much left out of the MDGs and national adaptation, because as we've seen in some of these examples, global goals aren't always appropriate, and they actually then marginalize popular participation in, in as, assuming and actually uh, working towards the achievement of such goals. Okay, we're gonna take a question now from the online audience. Um, and that question is? We do have a lot of questions coming in from India. So I'm, I'm going just to take one of those as an example. This is from Priyanka Bor Pujari from Mumbai. And she says, hello. I am an independent journalist in Mumbai, India. Last year, I was auditing a course on infectious diseases conducted by Dr. Richard Cash at HSPH. Back in India now, I am reporting on health issues. Here is my question to any one of the speakers. Have there been any instances where listening to the local needs and cultural mores have led to localized ways of tackling the causes of IMR and thus reducing child deaths? This I ask, given that the causes are global, yet ways to tackle them often need very localized mechanisms. I would like to know of such cases. Thank you. Richard, I think that would be best for you to start with that <laughs> one, since <laughs> it she, is, took your she class. is your student. Uh, and a very good student, I might add. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think that. Uh, Obviously, uh, the, the other panelists have alluded to this. When you set up uh, international goals, there is a tendency to look for 
international solutions. And I think that's a terrible mistake because a lot of these things have got to be adapted to uh, local realities and local issues. Uh, the, uh, the problems of uh, uh, someone living in a, uh, in a, uh, a water poor area are very, very different than someone living in Bangladesh where uh, there's water everywhere and so on. And the, uh, the goals uh, uh, may be very different. Uh, so that I think that I, I'm trying to think of a specific example of where this uh, might, have, uh, might be the case. But uh, suffice it to say that you have to develop local solutions for local problems. And, and that's one of the problems I have with MDGs. It's, and it's, uh, it's driven by an international agenda, certainly often not by a, by a country agenda, and certainly not by a local agenda. Um, an example of this might well be uh, uh, something that probably people wouldn't rather I not talk about, is a polio eradication, the attempts to eradicate polio, which is very much of an international agenda, but may well not be the agenda of uh, local governments and others who say, well, we've got a lot of other problems here. Why are you uh, having us do uh, national immunization days uh, five times a year? What about the kids who are dying of uh, meningitis or pneumonia or diarrheal disease? That's but one example, and which will uh, get me to cross swords with certain people who don't necessarily share that view. But okay. uh, that's one example. Okay, that that is a perfect transition, I think, to the to the uh, next part of our discussion today, which is to try to look um, more deeply at what works and what doesn't. So we want to challenge you more about um, what is working and why, but also really take the time here to look at what's not working and where there needs to be improvement, where there needs to be good journalism that can highlight uh, the areas that aren't working and what productive questions should we be putting out there in the field through these amazing young reporting fellows we have from Global Post who are here. One of them, Harman Bhopari, is from India and did a, did a very uh, powerful field report for us from there. I want to I go now to one more uh, video clip which will really look at this issue of dirty water and allow us to transition to that issue and, uh, and, and start to, to explore how that really lies at the core of so many of these, of these diseases. Eighteen hundred kids die every day from unclean water. As tragic as the wars that are going on worldwide, it's very rare that you hear about 1,800 people dying every day in any war zone. Kubei in Freetown, Sierra Leone is an example of these battle zones that are around the world. It's sewage everywhere. Children are bathing in, in what is known as the Crocodile River that runs through the neighborhood. And I was told there was seven places to find clean water uh, within the neighborhood. And so this is, a, this is a photo of a young man who ran out of clean water and who was gonna go around here and finish his shower. You just look at this stairwell of 
of water and garbage and you wonder, where is it going? Kids would walk outside their front door with a, a small metal can and a bar of soap and they would just literally walk right into this horrible dark water. These kids lived about 500 feet down the river. A half an hour later, a little boy bathed right here. In this case, even the teddy bears is injured. There has been great successes since the early 1990s with maternal infant mortality and access to clean water. Absolutely. But when 600 women are dying a day, and 1,800 kids are dying a day. How is this not a crisis? That film uh, features the photography of Dominic Chavez. Dominic is a Boston-based photographer. Uh, many of you may know his work, but for many years he's looked at this issue of child mortality and particularly at dirty water. And uh, he was my colleague at the Boston Globe. We were really proud to have him as part of our special report on Global Post. Um, just to ground you a little bit, Global Post is an online international news organization, and we're trying to take on these kinds of issues to get at sort of some of the core problems, the toughest challenges we face globally. And I think dirty water is one of those challenges that cuts across so many disciplines uh, in reporting, but also in health, um, in human rights. And, uh, and in great challenges to, to governments as to what they're doing to address this problem. So Richard, I think with your background and your expertise in this area, maybe you can start us off in looking at one question that really jumped out at us in our field reporting was the counterintuitive notion that India, a country so successful economically, really part of a a booming economy, one of the fastest growing economies in the world, has, has done very poorly at addressing dirty water and done certainly poorly in terms of the number of child deaths uh, that are occurring there every year. How is it that a country like Bangladesh, which struggles so much more dramatically in economic terms and is really seen as an economic basket case, has had much greater success? What are the differences there between India and Bangladesh and how can we learn from them? Well, I think in terms of water, both of them are, are on par. Bangladesh has a lot more, and so that they... Uh, uh, but they also have one of the largest uh, mass poisonings, if, if you were, because of uh, high arsenic levels in water. So we're talking about usually these kind of pictures which show you know, a lot of stuff floating around the water, but there's a lot of things in water that uh, we don't see, and sure. arsenic is one, and. Uh, uh, toxic chemicals that come out of uh, some of the factories and so on. I'm not sure Bangladesh has done any better. They have done uh, better in terms of infant mortality rates mm -hmm. in some of their areas. I think all of these countries across the globe have had huge problems, not the least of which is because of the high rates of urbanization that are taking place. And so the infrastructure of cities like Mumbai and Dhaka, which when I lived there was two million people and is now 15 million people, and that's in a 40-year 40, 40 period, 45-year period. So you can imagine if Boston had it expanded at that rate, uh, would we be able to keep up with the uh, water infrastructure, the sewage infrastructure, and so on? So there are just simply uh, 
overwhelming <coughs> problems that they face. That said, they still haven't managed to uh, to deal with these. And, I, and I'm a unfortunately, this is across the board. Okay. You could deal with uh, you could deal, as I said, Mumbai and Dhaka and Ibadan and, and Nairobi and all of these countries are facing a similar issue, not just with water but also with sanitation. India has the highest rate of open defecation, uh, another major, major problem uh, uh, that many of these cities and countries face. Okay. I'm going to come back to you on, on what's not working, and I want, to, I want to plant the seed on that now and to maybe stay with Bangladesh and India as examples that we could go a little bit further into. But to shift the conversation to Liz Gibbons and back to human rights, and to try to, to focus on the MDGs and some of the post-2015 agenda around those MDGs, and specifically to look at um, this issue of coordination of funding within and across health sectors and how to include um, all of the different constituencies in that funding and, and continue to focus our attention and this discussion on the human rights aspects. Okay, well, first of all, what doesn't work is expecting the health sector alone to reduce child mortality. It's impossible, and Richard has already referred to that. Um, so we know that twice as likely to die if you're poor, three times as likely if your mother is uneducated. So poverty alleviation, girls' education is obviously critical. But those are very long generational processes. So what I would like to see very immediately is an intense focus on maternal mortality. I mean, this is about, about gender inequality, it's about uh, child marriage, unwanted pregnancies, and the access to uh, reproductive rights and services. So uh, if you can end child marriage, you will immediately prevent a fourfold increase in the probability of maternal death if the child is under 16, if the mother is under 16, and a 50% increase in the probability of, the, of her child dying if she's under 15. So there's immediately an, an, an action. FXP in, uh, in East Africa is doing a very interesting study on the impact of maternal deaths on living children, and is finding that for a, if, a, if a child's mother dies, this child has a 50% chance of surviving to the age of one, versus a 95% chance if the mother survives. So right there, action on gender equality, on uh, empowering uh, young women will make a big difference. And there's also evidence that shows that countries which have laws that empower women have lower child mortality rates. The second, I think, really important uh, focus, which again is a completely different constituency, is on universal social protection. Poor children get poor services or services aren't able to reach their communities, but partly that the services that are there they can't afford. And uh, one way to equal, give them an equal chance at survival is cash grants to the mothers. And there's increasing evidence of the impact of social transfers and, and cash grants to families on child mortality. Uh, the very famous program, which many of you probably know about, is in Mexico, the Oportunidades program. 17% decrease in child mortality in rural areas when the uh, family got the cash grant. 11% decrease in maternal mortality, 25% decrease in uh, newborn in, uh, diseases and, and illnesses. Uh, and there are other cases in, Vietnam, in uh, Thailand, 6% uh, decrease in mortality when the government introduced an insurance scheme. So social protection is a really 
great way to focus attention on the poorest, give them an equal chance at survival. And finally, social accountability and public participation. Um, uh, that's key to the human rights approach, and, but it's also very effective in equalizing access to services. An example is Uganda, where um, there was frequent stock uh, outs of essential vaccines and medicines before the introdu introduction of the stopgap campaign, uh, stop stock campaign, and where citizens would text immediately to the authorities when the stocks ran out. And the impact was, uh, of course, much shorter duration of stock outs, less corruption, and of course, it, more availability of, of essential drugs. Second one uh, is a really interesting case from Guatemala where it really highlights the essential importance of disaggregated data. Where um, a study was done of the, on the right to, mortal, to the right to maternal health, and it showed that indigenous women were three times more likely to die during childbirth, and indigenous areas received one-third of the per capita investment of an already meager health budget. And this was taken up by civil society, put pressure on Congress. Congress passed a law that uh, insisted that there was a, a right to maternal health and that that right would be implemented without discrimination and that there would be no, no inequality in the investment per capita. And then created a commission to oversee the implementation of the law. So you have there accountability in action. So those are the three things I would, I would really say work and we should be doing more of. Okay, and then a, a very quick response to the idea of when you have multiple agencies working on the same issues, uh, on child mortality. Um, how do you get them to work together? If you could answer that quickly and then maybe some of the other okay. panelists can come to it as well. I think actually the example there is um, having a global goal like MDG4. Uh, it ended up forcing people to work together. Uh, the creation of the Partnership for Maternal and Newborn Child Health was created. Um, and altogether more of an emphasis. But how you get the human rights community also engaged, I think mm -hmm. it, it will depend on instances such as the one I just described where, where you have a, a health problem that is then reinforced by human rights mechanisms. Okay, Regina, your, your focus on prevention um, is, is something that we wanna hear from you about. Some of the specifics um, on solutions to controlling malaria, TB, and pneumonia, particularly when we're in resource poor settings. What are the issues to be thinking about there? What works and what doesn't? I'd actually like to pull an example that doesn't fall in, in those three because it shows, it, it addresses the, the question of the input of the, the local community, prioritization, and then impact. Okay. And that is the case of meningitis in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's something that happens in Sub-Saharan Africa, not in other parts of the world. Every couple of years, big epidemics of predominantly meningococcal A meningitis. And they come in epidemics, 1,000 people, 1,000 people ages 1 through 29 in the hospital. So it's very evident. It, it disrupts local priorities when it happens. It's something that politically has to be dealt with, and it can't be just an unseen epidemic. And there was an initiative to create a vaccine for that. And the people who received the funding to do that went back to the country and said, ask them a couple of questions. How much does it need to cost? And they said, it better cost less than 50 cents or we can't sustain it. Mm 
And then they were asked, do you want a meningitis A vaccine or do you want better insurance, but it'll take longer, a meningitis A C vaccine, a little more complicated, a little more expensive. They said, no, we have a problem now. We want meningitis A. So they went off for years. They've developed it. And I went to the launch of this, and it was very, very telling. This was a vaccine for a disease they saw as a priority mm -hmm. because it's an epidemic. And um, at the launch in Burkina Faso, they were supposed to immunize the population ages 1 through 29 in Burkina Faso in 10 days. And I went and my boss went, it'll never happen. And I came back, I said, you were right, it didn't take 10 days, it took eight. 99.9% of the population, probably like 101%, I think some people may have gotten snuck in yep. who were 30, uh, wanted that vaccine. The challenge is how do we turn some of these unseen epidemics like dirty water, like mortality in the first year of life, which are big drivers of the mortality uh, and morbidity gaps that we still face, into visible epidemics that will drive change. Because with engagement of the community and with a voice about what's needed to intervene, mm -hmm. I think we can be successful. Okay, so you've pointed out a very successful program for prevention. Mm -hmm. But where are you seeing most dramatically a failure of prevention? Um, I see that where it requires systems that are very weak. Treatment of pneumonia, treatment of malaria. They're not expensive. They're really not and expensive. Where are we seeing that? We're seeing that anywhere there is malaria and pneumonia in endemic areas. It requires a clinic or a place for a child to go to get an antibiotic. It's not part of that campaign. It's not part of massive distribution of bed nets. Mm -hmm. It's the child who still gets pneumonia or malaria or a severe dehydrating diarrhea in spite of what we can give. And those children will still exist. That requires prompt therapy. And it requires it for those most fragile children who mm -hmm. are furthest from the clinic and furthest from, from access and usually born to, to mothers that have no, uh, less understanding of how severe that such a problem can be. Okay. And we are not good at doing that yet. We're getting better. There's some interesting things that are going on with empowerment of local health care workers and, and volunte both volunteers as well as paid for by governments. But there's still a long ways to go. We don't have the systems in place well matured. Okay, thank you. And um, Jackie, if you would help us look uh, at, at this notion of community-based workers, how to train them, um, how to make sure uh, that they're part of capacity building. And I'm wondering if you can put out some specific examples of, again, where are you seeing that working and where is it not working and why? Um, so I think that there are two comments I'd like to make. One is in direct response to what you just asked me, and the other one is a little bit broader. Okay. I think the notion that you maximize access to medical attention by training people who don't go through the whole long medical training is fantastically important and has had some successes. I think in one of your, your posts, actually, you describe a program in Zambia where there are community-based workers who have been administering drugs very successfully. And it's a wonderful example um, of how you can use somebody who, uh, actually I think they were volunteers, which is a mixed blessing. People should be paid to do this work. But people who ha didn't have years of medical training, uh, but nevertheless could diagnose these illnesses with fairly simple toolkit and then could apply, again, fairly simply remedies. So that's cheap, that's effective, 
that is, uh, you know, has the capacity to have an amazing knock-on effect. I think I know that there are programs in India in uh, Co colleagues initiated wonderful uh, community health training programs in Goa, not only for physical illnesses, but also for mental illnesses, issues to do with maternal depression or uh, depression in response to HIV AIDS, where you can train community-based workers to address the symptoms and to intervene in a much more cost-effective way. So I think there really are, and in, in reply to Priyanka's question, those are some local examples which really come from the communities, which come from particular contexts, particular understandings of what constitutes illness and particular ways of tackling it. Because, of course, the way you understand illness is also community-related. They are We here may have global notions about the indica indicators, but within particular communities, there, there aren't. The last thing I'd like to say is that um, Many of the critical factors that we've mentioned aren't simply addressable through a vaccine. Liz mentioned child marriage. Now, child marriage has been illegal in India for a long time, um, and yet it is pervasive. And we know that a very high proportion of rural girls, particularly low-caste girls, but not only, uh, are married when they're 14, 15, 16. We also know that child marriage correlates very strongly with uh, maternal mortality and with um, infant mortality. But there is no vaccine against child marriage. Just passing a law doesn't change it. And so what I would say is that we certainly need to be gung-ho and optimistic about some of the scientific changes we've made, and they need to be developed and uh, spread more generally. But we also need to be aware of the complexity of changing social norms. So to really make inroads into the pervasiveness of child marriage, you need to, to change the way poor parents think about how they protect their daughters. That's very hard to do. You need to create different incentives. You need parents to think, well, the best insurance policy for my daughter is not to marry her at 14 so that I'm sure she has a husband and a family. The best insurance policy is that she goes to school and that she goes to secondary school and that she goes to university and that she gets a job. So that's a huge transition. And we really don't have any vaccine for delivering that. So I would just say that I think we have to operate at multiple levels here, because if we could really tackle child marriage as effectively as we're tackling some of the illnesses, we would be really streets ahead of where we are. And that tackling that would come down to involvement in legal systems and trying to actually put forward a legal structure in which that would be, I guess, prosecuted. Well, How do partly, we begin that process? I, I, I think we already have laws which criminalize child marriage. That's really not the problem. And yet policymakers and elected representatives, it's well known in India, frequently attend child marriages because their electorate are having them. So it's a question of changing social norms, which is much less easy. Prosecution may be a way, but you know, if you prosecute an unpopular law, you're not going to stay in office very long. So politicians, there's no, as far as I know, there are hardly any prosecutions for child marriage, um, none. And you know, how effective is that? If you're the only one whose child doesn't get married early, um, whereas everybody else is, then, you know, you, she might be left on the shelf. So you need to change the way the whole community think about that. So I think we need to look at precedents, like the wonderful precedent from Senegal, where whole communities changed uh, their attitude to female circumcision as a group norm. Mm -hmm. So everybody in the community says, I'm not going to circumcise my daughter. And then the whole community can kind of 
have the confidence that their daughter's not going to be left out because she's the only one who's not circumcised. Okay. So that's sort of, but it's hard. And mm -hmm. I think criminal law alone is really not the, the answer. So the layering and the complexity of all of these problems are, are, are enormous. And they are really why at Global Post we tried to go at this issue. But I'm sure all of you have more questions. So we're going to go into our final round here of questions and answers. Um, so I want to throw out to the audience here first if anyone has a question. And I'm hoping we can particularly draw on Richard's expertise on waterborne because I still haven't heard from him on what works and what doesn't. So try to <laughs> direct it that way, and I'm going to try to, to see if we can get to Richard on that. But who has a question uh, they would like to put forward here? Hi, my name is Emma Sheldon, and I'm a first-year student in the two-year master's program in global health and population. And across the board, we've heard you all talk about the interdisciplinary nature of this problem, whether it's with legal system, public health and um, human rights, or public health and public infrastructure. And so my question is, as public health experts, how are you, specifically Richard Cash, how are you <laughs> um, collaborating with experts in other fields to end child mortality, and how is the movement as a whole working towards this type of engagement? Uh, well, uh, I think that uh, I work with a number of uh, NGOs, uh, one particular in Bangladesh called BRAC, which I think is the world's largest NGO. Let me just, uh, uh, and I think uh, this is an important issue because um, people have spoken about uh, how well Bangladesh is done in many areas. Part of that is because of the strength of civil society. That is, uh, and the partnership between government and civil society. Government ultimately is the ma major purveyor, but civil society provides new ideas, different ideas, and this partnership, uh, that is not to say everybody, you know, walks lockstep to the same uh, drummer, or dances to the same tune. Uh, that's one of the values of having different uh, groups there. But this, uh, uh, this partnership in many areas is extremely important. I wanted to also address very quickly the uh, issues that uh, Jackie raised. When I lived, uh, when I first uh, went to Bangladesh, and I sort of keep going back there, but that's my, that's my uh, base, so to speak. Uh, the gender, there was a clear gender uh, differential in terms of mortality, much higher in girls than in boys. That's not true anymore. Uh, uh, life expectancy is greater for girls than boys. What has happened? Well, one thing that has happened is um, uh, the garment industry, which employs millions of young girls. Their economic value is much, much more appreciated. Uh, schooling, the number of boys and girls in school is equal. So those things have been reversed uh, over a 40-year period. It can be done. It can be done, but it requires a multiplicity of of factors taking place. It's not a health issue, it's not a development issue, it's not a, it's, it's society's issue. It's about the society itself and where that society wants to go and wishes to go. And, and as I say, I think there have been reverses, but I see these things getting, uh, certainly getting better and better if we keep our eye on the prize, so to speak. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else who wanted to quickly address that? Because we have other questions. Yeah, sure. Another question. Please. 
My name is Aisha Sanya and I'm a postdoctoral fellow in Global Health Department and I'm also from Bangladesh. So I actually have two questions uh, regarding the new vaccines, rotavirus, um, meningitis vaccines. Are there countries, developing countries that already have included these vaccines in routine immunization programs? And in terms of global commitment from the donors and development agencies, how far we are with pushing that agenda? So um, yes, yes, there are countries that have um, included that. Um, the meningitis vaccine was licensed in 2010 and more than 150 million people have received it already. Wow. That's a massive scale up compared to what our expectations would have been a decade ago. And that's partially through funding from the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. Uh, for rotavirus vaccine that has been slower because diarrhea sort of is either not talked about, less, less visible to people. Uh, Gavi has also in included it and it's expected that that will be, that is being introduced now and it's a, a country level decision because it's totally driven by public, se public sector uh, delivery systems and public sector financing. So yes, those have been, I think there's a malaria vaccine that was presented in Cape Town, in Durban, <laughs> Durban uh, yesterday that um, actually showed about a 50% decrease in rates of malaria in toddlers. And that if you vaccinate 1,000 toddlers, they'll have about 900 plus uh, fewer cases of malaria because they get more than one. So there's new technologies coming, but I'd like to, because I'm not arguing for vaccines, I'm arguing for effective prevention. And if the idea is prevention, let's figure out what the intervention is to actually make um, it uncool to have your daughter married at less than 16. If you can figure out that intervention hmm. and scale it, that's where you can have action in w that goes across geographic boundaries. So in many ways, prevention is an idea that, that needs to be made real by interacting with the community. You had some good examples of that. So we'll take one more question from the audience and then maybe we'll go to an online We've had a number of questions about violence, and so I just want to share one of them. Um, at one point recently, I saw a statistic that said nine of the 12 countries where child mortality is highest have suffered armed conflicts recently. What do you see as the relationship between conflicts like these and death of under fives in terms of delivery of aid, vaccines, and such? Liz, would you want to start us off sure, with that? I can start off on that. Well, one of the first things in countries of conflict is that the infrastructure is destroyed. So um, really just even access to health services is missing. Um, so there's much more mortality uh, due to that. But there's also a breakdown in social norms very, very often. So you know, routine practice of rape and abuse which of course has an impact on uh, maternal mortality, it has an impact on child mortality. Uh, so those are uh, among the many issues that would correlate uh, between violence and post-conflict and child mortality. Um, but I was very encouraged to read in this last report that came out last week that one of the, one of the countries that in the, in the, amongst the poorest that's actually achieved the uh, MDG of dropping by two-thirds is Liberia. I was very, very surprised. So again, things can be done. It's just how we learn from that. Okay. And um, did you want to add to that, Jackie? Did you want to give yes, us the I closing thought on that? I think that's a, great, that's a great question because, of course, uh, to some extent, violence begets violence. And so we know that in post, as, as Liz said, in post-conflict countries, we know that 
uh, domestic violence, gender-based violence often increases. And so what used to be exceptional becomes the norm. And we've seen that in the DRC with terrible consequences. And as we were saying earlier, young mothers are the most likely to give birth to babies that die. So where you have a crumbling or destroyed infrastructure, you have very high rates of gender-based violence, you have low rates of education, and you have a very gender unequal situation, then it's really, a, unfortunately, a perfect storm for increasing child mortality. So that is a huge consequence of violence. I want to wrap up by thanking our panelists. It was really extraordinary. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Um, I want to thank the Harvard School of Public Health for hosting this forum and for allowing Global Post to participate. I want to thank Kaiser Family Foundation as well for supporting our, our work on global health. And I want to thank you all for joining us both online and in the audience. Thank you very much. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.